I'm really excited uh, to talk to you this morning about this person named Jesus, the most extraordinary, most extraordinary person to ever live. And we've encountered him this season in the incarnation. And now we get to incarnate uh, with this blind man and start to see this beauty of this person of Jesus emerge. And I hope that this morning that we all just really just like Mary, sit at his feet and, and fall in love with him. Uh, there's, uh, you know, there, we all have these things, these devices uh, that are always in front of us uh, pretty much 24-7. Uh, and there's an, a, there's an aspect to which uh, they create in us distraction and those kind of things. One day I was uh, sitting in the living room and I was on my phone, uh, submerged in something probably not very useful. And my daughter, Mary Catherine, who was about six years old at the time, she just kept saying, Daddy, watch this. Daddy, watch this. And I was like vaguely hearing it in, my back, in the background. And then she comes over and she grubs my face like this. And she goes, Daddy, please watch. And I was like, oh, like you. You've melted my heart because I wasn't seeing my daughter. Uh, it's one of my constant prayers, honestly, personally, that I don't just go through life going through the motions. I get so busy, whether it's di- helping with the dishes or doing something around the house. I want to see people. I want to see my children. Uh, and I want to be uh, immersed in their life in that way. All these things uh, about seeing one another. They, uh, I had this pastor that I listen to a lot um, these days. His name is John Mark Comer. I encourage you to go listen to some of his sermons. Uh, he says that uh, the evil one today has three great, uh, three great devices that he's using in the church and in the lives of people. And it's busyness, it's hurry, and distraction. Dallas Willard said uh, to uh, ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And I believe that, that there's, if Satan can keep us busy, if he can keep us in a hurry and he can keep us distracted, uh, then what happens is the ability to love is diminished. The ability to have compassion is diminished. The, the ability to see, to really see, uh, dwindles. So ultimately, these things keep us from love. So this morning, uh, we're going to peer into the window of love. We're going to peer into the person of Jesus to see what love looks like, uh, to watch a blind man. Uh, we're also going to witness kind of this surrounding culture that this blind man interacts with and, and see some ways in which there's obstacles to love and, and hopefully learn from those and learn from, uh, from Jesus what love looks like. So let's, let's begin by incarnating with the blind man. Incarnating just means a uh, simple definition. You put the shoes on of the person uh, that you're, in, you're interacting with and you feel what they feel, you think what they think. So let's incarnate for a minute what life was like for the blind man. I mean, first century... If you had a disability, 
didn't have any advantages that disabilities have now. Uh, there was no help, and, and usually you were relegated to sitting at the front gate of the city with something in front of you and beg for money. Uh, there was no ability to work uh, if your ability was so bad, and this man's was blindness, that he wasn't able to work, and, and likely his parents uh, didn't support him very well. He ended up on the, on the front gates. It was the only way for him to make a living. Uh, so the only way he could have food and eat is to beg. It would be like uh, someone, uh, it would be like if you had a disability that did, wasn't able to work and no one supported you and you went and sat at the front door of Pruitt's with a can in front of you and you begged every day of your life just to survive. This is what it was like for this man a beggar at the front gates. And so as he's, he's been blind, from, the text tells us that he's been blind from birth. So imagine that for a moment. I don't think there's anyone blind in here today. So it's really hard for us to incarnate with this man. But imagine the only thing he's known is complete darkness. He doesn't know what his parents look like. He doesn't know what the other beggars around him look like. He doesn't know what the city walls look like. He doesn't know what a tree looks like. He doesn't know what the, the dust of the earth that Jesus is going to use in a minute. He doesn't know what that looks like. He doesn't know what a, uh, the synagogue looks like, what, it, what his community looks like. He's been cast out to the city gate, wandering in darkness, and then Jesus Christ enters his life. Do you notice what the first thing that Jesus does? Look at verse 1 with me. And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, the man or his parents, that he was born blind? So, Jesus, very, the very first thing that Jesus does is what? He sees. You realize that there's, there's no one who's ever walked the planet that saw like Jesus saw. And I'm not meaning like he, he could read people's thoughts and those kind of things. I mean, he really, really saw people. His eye, the, the most common emotion that expressed in scripture for Jesus Christ is compassion. What do eyes of compassion look like? We know what eyes of anger look like. Do you imagine peering into the, the compassionate eyes of Jesus? And Jesus saw this blind man. He really saw him and he was, his heart was moved with compassion. And this is a pattern all throughout the gospels in Jesus' life that he sees, he's, his heart is moved with compassion and then he does something. It's the beauty uh, of this person that we're encountering that he's not caught up in the busyness, the hurriness, and the distraction of the world. We learn when we watch Jesus, we're learning what it really means to be human. 
It really could be that none of us have experienced the fullness of humanity because we're fallen humanity. Jesus, the fullness of humanity, when you open the scriptures and you're reading this story and you're reading the gospels, you're watching fullness of humanity live. You're watching humanity 2.0. You're watching the better Adam. So Jesus loves this love for this man, his attention drawn on him seems to, seems to be long enough. This is somewhat inference, not clear in the text, but I think it's accurate that Jesus saw this man lying or sitting at the, or standing at the gates of the front of the city. And for some reason, he, he at least sees him long enough and his gaze is on him long enough that his disciples, it triggers a question for them. And their question is, who sinned, this man or his parents that he was born blind? So what's the first thing we see that Jesus has moved towards this man? And what's the reaction of the disciples? Well, their reaction is they judge him. They don't see a person. They see a theological question to be answered by the rabbi. They don't see a, a person who needs love. They see a problem that needs to be fixed. They are, in essence, passing judgment on the man. Why? Because they're not seeing. They're not seeing, so therefore, it's easy for them to cast judgment. So the first obstacle, really, of love that we learn from the disciples is that judging is an obstacle of love. It's an obstacle to love. Uh, you know, I think of my own busyness, my own hurry and distraction, uh, how it's related to judging. I mean, think about that. Think about how easy it is to judge. Remember, you know, all the times we, you know, you're in a supermarket or something and you see a child acting up and you watch the interaction of the parents. And what goes through your mind? Yeah, she needs to whoop that son. Or son you know, you come up with something she needs more, di they need more discipline in their life. Or we are, we're, we're walking into a room, even this morning, in the community of Christ, and our hearts are measuring and judging. Is this part of our fallenness? And distraction and hurry and busyness, in my opinion, creates more judging. Because it's just really a lot easier it was a lot easier for the, for the disciples to just judge in this moment than to actually enter into the mess. Judging treats people like objects. Judging stands at a distance and makes quick assessments. Judging doesn't enter the mess. Judging puts self on the throne. Judging is easy. Notice how Jesus teaches us how to love in this passage. He doesn't judge the man, but he moves towards him. He incarnates with the man. He sees him and moves towards him and moves to heal him. He sees that he needs love. He's not a problem for Jesus, but he's someone who needs love. And the disciples bring this real hard theological question that I'm really not going to 
answer today. I'll let Jimmy do that uh, later. Who, man, who sinned, this man uh, or his parents? You know, there's, uh, Jesus gives us, gives the answer to the disciples and he really gives the answer that says it was not his uh, parents that, it's not the man that sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. You know, there's a, there's a, in essence, Jesus is saying, it's not as simple as saying that sin caused this problem. Like there's a, there's a whole realm. Jesus is saying this, this is way more complex in the providence of God and the glory of God than just a simple black and white answer that the disciples seem to be wanting. So, but in the case of, of this case, it really is interesting that the, the reason for the suffering, and Jesus sometimes says the Lord disciplines those that he loves. And then in this case, he says, no, it's not the discipline of the Lord. It's that the glory of the Lord might be shown, that his works might be seen, that I might bring healing and God might receive glory. So Jesus spits on the ground he makes saliva. Okay, think about this for a moment, all right? We don't think of Jesus in these ways. We don't think about the person of Jesus in these ways. He was a man born in a, a stable, and then our minds just jump immediately to the cross and the resurrection, and it's accomplished salvation for us. We don't really think of him as this rich person, this amazing person that spit on the ground. I mean, do we really think of Jesus going, and spitting in the mud and then like probably right to make mud out of dust you have to kind of swirl it around with your finger so he's taken this nasty big wad of spit he swirled it around with his finger and he's made mud with it now he's like playing with his own spit and mud with his fingers Jesus is very earthy right Literally, isn't it beautiful to think that the very one who took man and formed him from the dust of the ground spit into the dust of the ground to once again bring life to another man. To think that we often think of Jesus as just this lofty person who's floating above life. We're often, the gospel writers don't often defend the humanity, the personhood of Jesus. They're often defending the divinity of Jesus, that he truly was the son of God. Because they were often assuming, like this blind man says, it was a man named Jesus. And I believe culturally today, we're on the opposite end of that spectrum. Perhaps we're not having to defend in the church the divinity of Christ. But at See Jesus, we, we really hope that the church begins to see the person, the humanity of Jesus. That he was real, that he spit on the ground, that he heals a man in this way. Jesus incarnates with this man and he tells him to go and wash. You know, the water is in the pool of Siloam. It's kind of interesting. It says that it means scent. It comes from a, a spring called the Gihon Spring 
and the Kidron Valley, and the, the water is sent into the town because King Hezekiah in 701 BC builds this water tunnel through solid bedrock into Jerusalem so that when the Assyrians attack, they won't run out of water. And if you go there today, there's still water running through it. And it's likely that this man is sitting at a, ga- a gate, the Ashpot Gate, which is close to this, and Jesus tells him to go wash in the spring. Go wash in the pool of Siloam. Because he goes and he washes, and the blind man comes back seeing. Could you imagine what's happened? This whole man's life, the whole trajectory of his life has been turned upside down. He's gone from total darkness his entire life, and now he sees full color. He sees trees, he sees birds, he sees the dust, he sees people, he sees their faces, he gets to see the community that he lives in. He sees, now he goes back and sees all the other beggars that were around him at the city gate, and he's now seeing them, and he sees the synagogue, and he sees this community around him. Could you imagine the hope and the the joy in this man's heart to see for the first time? It's extraordinary what Jesus has done for him, how he's restored him, and And what must the man who was blind, who the very first encounter he has with Jesus, he hears one side of the conversation, a Jesus who is saying, essentially, I'm going to bring this man hope. And a disciples who are saying, who is this man? Was he born? Because was this sin that caused this? I mean, what's going through his head? And then all of a sudden his eyes are opened and he starts seeing people. He starts seeing things and he, he starts to en- encounter them. So what do, we, what do we see next? Look at verses 8 through 13. I'm going to go through these quickly. The blind man encounters his neighbors. What do, what do his neighbors do? His neighbors uh, kind of ask, uh, hey, here's this, who is this man? Is it? I think it is him. No, maybe it's just somebody that looks like him. And then there, there, there's kind of this cynicism about him. This skepticism over, this can't be the, this can't be the man. How often does, does cynicism creep into your life? Skepticism over different aspects of what God might do? How might cynicism be robbing you of the ability to love others. You know, it's, when we think about our culture, it's ripe with cynicism. When you turn on the news, it's just cynicism after cynicism, after cynical joke, after cynical comment, over and over and over again. The blind man is experiencing his neighbors who who don't even say, hey man, you got your sight. Wow. (laughs) No, it's just like, is this really the guy? I don't think this is the guy. He just looks like another guy. I mean, there's no joy, no celebration of this man. He just gets, his eyes are opened and the, the reality that he sees is a cynical world. 
And I wonder sometimes if followers of Jesus sometimes could be the most cynical. What was going through this man's mind and his heart at this point as he's experiencing the culture around him? And then, you know, they, their cynicism leads them to, to fear because they know that the, the Pharisees have already threatened, hey, if you follow Jesus, if you claim to follow Jesus, you're going to be kicked out of the church. So they take the blind man to the Pharisees, kind of the second group that he encounters. And he meets the Pharisees in this first round about with the, with the Pharisees, they're very cynical too. Uh, they're asking him a lot of questions. And again, there's no celebration of the man, hey, you've got your sight back, but there's this deep cynicism in them. Compassion, love is, is blocked once again. There's no compassion towards the man. We'll get to the Pharisees more in a moment. It's, you know, the cynicism that makes us question, makes them question, who is this man that's taken a blind man and healed him? Albert Einstein has a famous quote. He was a devout Jew, and he said this, no man can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. And his last phrase is, no myth is filled with such life. Who is this person that they're encountering? The blind man is encountering a cynical neighbor, judging disciples, cynical neighbors, cynical Pharisees, and then he encounters his parents. And what what do his parents do? Again, there's no recording in John that his parents went and celebrated with him. Like my son has been given sight. And they just confirm, yeah, he's, this is the one that was born blind. Doesn't seem to be any record of them celebrating, but actually they react in fear because they know the consequences if they affirm that Jesus had done this. It means that they're going to be excommunicated, which means they lose all privileges in their community. And it'll probably be a public pronouncement. And so they're unwilling as this man's parents to incarnate with their son. You understand what the man must be witnessing? His eyes have been opened. And you almost get a sense in which he goes, man, just just let me close my eyes again. He's seeing all this around him. And it's, Interesting, his reaction. Well, let's go back to the Pharisees. They go to the parents. Pharisees take him to the parents. And then uh, they start confronting him uh, upon all these things. And how many times? There's like three or four times that the blind man just says, hey, I was blind and now I see. Like, is anybody going to, like, hello? I was blind and now I see. And like, he's just met with this cold stuff over and over. And then the, the, the fourth obstacle of love that the Pharisees present in 24 to 34 is self-righteousness. You know, they did, that self-righteousness becomes uh, the obstacle of love for them. I mean, look at, look at the, the man's response in 25. I love this response. 
in verse 24, for the second time they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know is that I was blind and now I see. They said to him, Where do you, uh, what, did you, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already and you wouldn't listen. Why do, why do you want me to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? I just love that. Like there's this snarkiness to the blind man. Like he's already starting to understand who this extraordinary person that he's encountered, the most extraordinary person to ever walk the planet. And he says, there's no one else in history that's touched the eyes of a blind man and he can see. Like, don't you see? And he's got that like, oh, so you want to be his disciple? Come on. Like he's, he's already turned into an evangelist. It's crazy. The man encounters another obstacle to love. That they say, we would much rather have the letter of the law than the spirit of the law. We'd much rather hold the line of Moses and accuse Jesus of making mud on the Sabbath and condemn him to death than believe that he's a gracious, kind healer, the greater prophet, the one who's fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah and he's given sight to the blind. They'd rather remain in their own self-righteousness and self-righteousness, perhaps the greatest of obstacles to love because self-righteousness can't see anyone else. It's the obstacle. You know, I often have these self-righteous streaks in myself and the ways that I think I'm right about something. I, my family is sitting right here. They could all attest to this. Ways that I think I'm right and I won't bend. And it's only by the grace of God that that breaks. But I wonder how many times, even with my wife, how many times my judgmental, self-righteous, cynical heart doesn't have compassion for my wife because I'm so enthralled with my own righteousness. I've got it right. That's what the self-righteous person says. So the self-righteous is, apart from the grace of God breaking the heart, doesn't see people and the heart isn't moved to compassion. What about, uh, you know, you look at this, this last section of this man in verse 34, at the end of this whole conversation with the disciples, he's cast out again. Now he's, this man has been cast out two times. He was cast out as a blind beggar. He receives his sight and now he's cast out of the church. Double whammy. His eyes have been open. He's seeing realities. Realities. You know, the lack of compassion from others 
It's, it's interesting, isn't it? It doesn't seem to bother the man. It's really fascinating. He, he's so certain that he's encountered the most extraordinary person to ever live. His security in this person named Jesus makes all this cynicism and judgmental and self-righteous things that he's encountering, he's immovable. He knows who he's encountered. He knows that he's experienced this amazing person named Jesus. And Jesus comes back in at the end of this scene. It's part of the reason I want to cover the whole chapter because it, the, it's the beauty of this person of Jesus that provides space. Paul Miller talks about this all the time, that how Jesus just provides space for faith to grow. Notice he heals the man. Jesus really disappears from the scene. And at the very end, look, at, look with me at verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And what does Jesus do? I love this. This is gospel beauty. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus went and found the man that had now been twice cast out. I mean, it do you see how just the gospels pulsate with this kind, gentle, humble, not overtly in your face, but a, a person of Jesus who simply just asks questions and lets faith grow and watches and listens. He's so caring as he engages the heart. It's almost like the, the loop of, of his love is closed because he went and healed the man and now he's given him ultimate healing and salvation because the man says, yes, I want to know who this is. Who is it? And Jesus says, it's me who you see. The first one in this whole encounter to acknowledge that the man can see is Jesus. Do you see the dignity with which he loves people with? Oh, the beauty of the person of Jesus that he always encloses his loop with a personal act of love. So I want to close with this. As you think about these things, it's, it's really important that we hear that John is showing us the person of love that we may be really be awestruck uh, with the beauty of who he is. Now, I'm, I'm a PCA pastor, so I'm, I'm getting on to myself in the midst of this. We don't necessarily fully take from this passage that, yes, I, I fail at compassion. My self-righteousness gets in the way. My judgmental spirit gets in the way. All these things, we, we do understand those things. But oftentimes, here's what I think we, we fail to make a full picture, is that we often say the gospel is to be preached to my heart. I need to repent of the ways in which I'm not compassionate. That is 100% true. 
But we also need to give people the reality is that we have been united by the Spirit of Christ to the most amazing person of Christ. And that because of that, the Spirit is propelling and pushing and pruning and molding and shaping you for one purpose, that you might give glory to God as you look more and more like Jesus. So what do we do with this passage? We don't just say, preach the gospel to yourself. I failed at compassion. I'm going to repent and believe. That is true. But we also fix our eyes on Jesus. And we learn from him what love looks like in all the graces, in all the power of the Holy Spirit. Now I can go and I can begin to love. And I can begin to ask the question, Jesus, how would you love this person? How did you incarnate and enter into the mess of this blind man and restore life to him? How can I do that with my wife? How can I do that with my children? How can I do that with my coworkers? How can I do that with students I'm in class with that really annoy me? How can, right? How can I begin to, to look like Jesus as I love? That is the trajectory that Jesus has for us. One last comment. The disciples learned from the person of Jesus how to love. And proof of this is in Acts 3, 4. You can look at it later. Jesus is ascended into heaven. Peter and John are walking into a city gate. And they see a man with a disability. And you know what Luke says in the text in Acts 3, 4? It says, Peter and John fixed their gaze upon him. Where did they learn how to love? From watching the person of love. They watched the way he did life. It wasn't just a gospel transaction for them. It was a real person that they had seen, the most extraordinary person do life and love like no one they'd ever experienced. And it changed the way they did life. So may we love like Jesus loves. Let me pray for us. Jesus, help us by the power of your spirit to really be followers of you. That means we're watching you. We want our eyes to be fixed upon you because you're the author and perfecter of our faith. Or thank you that you give us life and you restore sight. And then you give us the realities of what love looks like. May we spend all our days, the remaining days that you have for us here on this earth, sitting at your feet, learning from you how to love, that we might go and love others and love the Father and fulfill the greatest commandments. We pray these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.